If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided by the church, you'll find that on page 1109. Hebrews chapter 10. What is the worst crisis that you heard about in 2019? A Google search of the words 2019 crisis will yield results of natural disasters, homelessness epidemics, global warming, stock market activity, and Tesla bulletproof window demonstrations gone wrong. With all of the legitimately terrible and devastating things that were covered in the news this past year, the most devastating crisis that is happening all across the world today got almost zero news coverage. It's when a professing believer waves their white flag to the barrage of trials and doubts and fears and persecutions, and they turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they renounce their allegiance to him. There were a couple of notable and apparently newsworthy accounts of this happening to well-known pastors or musicians in this past year, but every single day, the people of God around the world and in this very church face heart-wrenching and difficult circumstances or encounter devilish ideologies that can result in a loosening grip on Christ until eventually one decides to throw off their confidence in the Savior and his gospel and its promises. This is the worst of all tragedies that is happening in the world today. When those fiery darts come at us of persecution and doubts and challenges and fears, they can result in one of two things. They can either pierce our souls and burn up our devotion to Christ and trust in him, or if we are armed with God's armor as the Ephesian church was instructed to be, then we can raise our shield of faith and quench the flame. If you are in Christ today, you will not get out of this life without encountering such darts. None of us gets out of here without being shot at. We were called by our Savior and our Lord to the Calvary road that he himself walked before us. And if we are going to follow him faithfully, crosses await us. It may be that even today, you are in the middle of a crisis of faith, experiencing one right now. Or maybe you aren't. But if you've never come to a period in your Christian journey that you, would, that you have experienced a crisis of faith, take it on the authority of scripture that you will at some point. None of us knows what 2020 holds, but if we are to remain faithful to the end, we must know that these things will come at some point, and we must have as our framework the whole counsel and armor of God. The author, to the, book of, the author of the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of Christians who were in the middle of a deep pit of crisis and were on the brink of recanting their faith, and with it, the glorious realities that it brings in this life and hopes that it brings for the life to come. And throughout the entire book of Hebrews, the writer 
applies remedy after remedy, like a skilled physician, to these soul-sick brothers and sisters. And his aim is to re restore them to a strong, resilient, persevering faith. And today we're going to look at one section, one shelf in this medicine cabinet, uh, chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. And we're going to seek God's help to have this same sort of faith that the, the author was aiming to produce in these Christians that he wrote to. So let's read together uh, chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. This is what it says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your utter honesty with us. Think of Jesus, who would often speak the plain truth of the cost of following him, and at the same time speak of the worthiness of himself. And so, Lord, I pray that as we consider these words from Hebrews, that we would carefully consider both. And Lord, that you, by your grace, would strengthen us, that you would open our eyes to behold this worthy Savior, that you would fill our hearts with the hope of heaven and confidence in your faithfulness, that our trust would be in you and in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are two uh, major thrusts in this passage, two things that the author calls the reader to remember as a means of strengthening their faith. He calls them to remember first, uh, remember your first encounter with Christ. And secondly, remember your second encounter with Christ. So the first, remember your first encounter with Christ. Look at the first few words there in verse 32. But recall the former days. There was a point in time when these brothers and sisters, the ones reading this epistle, were without Christ and were without hope in this world. They sought to commend themselves to God through their good works, their law-keeping efforts, and their sacrifices. The author of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that all these were insufficient and that as long as someone puts their trust in these things, they are in utter darkness as sincere as they might be. But the message of Christ came to these people, and it was like the sun rising for the first time, shining upon their hearts and revealing to them their bankruptcy before God. But they also saw in Christ all they needed to be made right with God and to live eternally in his presence. It was like uh, the man that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 13, who comes across the greatest of all treasures and realized that all he had amassed in his life was not worth comparing to it. 
And so he goes and he joyfully sells all that he has in order to lay hold of that priceless piece of real estate. Until that point, the Jewish community was subject to the wider Roman rule. They were a conquered people and were allowed to practice their religion in peace so long as they didn't violate the decrees of Caesar and his governing authorities. They peacefully carried out their religious duties and didn't ruffle any feathers. But then along comes Christ into the scene and he's declared king of the Jews, calling for ultimate allegiance to him by all Israelites and indeed all the world. Now this you can imagine threatened Roman order as there was now a new contender for the throne and a new claimant on the hearts and allegiances of the citizens of the empire. And the same is true today. When a person comes under the conviction of God's spirit upon hearing the gospel, they are taught by Jesus himself to count the cost of following him. For some in this room, that has meant or will mean losing friends, uh, being alienated at work, being estranged from family, being ridiculed or mocked or seen as that weird Bible thumper kid in school. If nothing else, One's choice to follow Jesus means that they are vowing to not sin against God, which in itself is enough to have major rippling effects in all of life. You realize that when you embrace Jesus Christ fully, it changes everything. But these Jewish Christians, upon hearing the gospel, embraced Christ, notwithstanding all of that. Because just like the Apostle Peter, they realized that there really was no alternative in light of the truth of Scripture. When faced with the challenges and cost of following Christ, then given the option to turn back, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For Peter and for all true believers, it would be better to sludge along in the uphill battle of living for God, struggling all the way, than to know the temporal happiness and acceptance of living outside the will of God in the sinful passions of the fallen heart. If today you are not a Christian, please realize that eternity is real, that God truly is holy and that he will judge all people by his righteous standard. There is none of us that measure up, and all of us alike are deserving of his just judgment of eternal death. And there is only one way to be made right with God, and that is by turning from your sin and putting all of your trust in Jesus, the Holy One of God. If you do that today, you will be forgiven of all your crimes and granted everlasting life. These people, to whom the book of Hebrews is addressed, did just that. And as can be expected from all who turned to, for, for all who turned to God, they experienced persecution. Now it's many years later, after their conversion, and they find themselves in a state of wavering in their faith. And they're tempted to turn back to their non-confrontational, non-controversial practices of their former way of life. And so the author is here bringing attention to the time of their conversion in order to highlight how differently 
they used to think and how differently they used to respond to suffering and persecution. So he highlights two aspects of their response to these things in their early days as a Christian. The first is this, they endured suffering. So read with me verse 32 and 33. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. In first century history, we read of a number of occasions of widespread persecution towards Jewish Christians in the years 49, 64, and 66 through 70. It's possible that some of those reading this very letter were among those affected by these events. But whatever the case was, these readers, because of their faith in Christ, were subject to what the author calls reproach and affliction. And the difficult experience of these afflictions itself was compounded by the fact that their ridicule was public, as the writer says. They were held up as the scum of society. They were subjected by the authorities to the ridicule and the reproach of the general public. And maybe it was done as an example, to be an example to those tempted to convert, tempted to follow their way, that those who dare walk that path can expect to, sit, to face the same thing. But unlike their current response of being tempted to turn back, in those early days, in their walk with Christ, they endured. They had come to know the living God. What else could they need? Come what may, persecutions, reproach, public humiliation, we have the God of the universe on our side. What else could we need? It's like uh, Spurgeon once said, God's smile and a dungeon are enough for a true heart. His frown and a palace would be hell to a gracious spirit. Having God smile upon them because of, because of their allegiance to Christ was all they needed to press on and remain faithful. Because in Christ, they had found all that their souls needed for life and all that their hearts needed for joy. The Apostle Paul is another example of this when he writes to the Philippians about what it cost him to follow Christ. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In their newfound Savior, these Christians endured the trials that came their way. They stood fast against the tide of persecution. But not only that, they were also compelled to put themselves in the path of that tide, even when they didn't have to. That's the sec second observation the author makes. First, that they endured suffering, and secondly, that they voluntarily embraced affliction. Look at verse 33 and 34 with me again. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. It was not uncommon for Christians of the first century to be put in prison for believing and proclaiming the good news about Jesus. This would mean being cut off from resources and sometimes 
the very necessities of food and drink. It could also mean not being supplied with basic clothing to weather the cold winter months. We see an example of that in Paul's life, where he was imprisoned and had to write to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. And he says, Do your best to come to me before winter. And in that same chapter it says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left Carpus. Evidently, he, he didn't even have the basic necessities of life or clothing to make it through the winter that was approaching. And so it was left to fellow brothers and sisters in the faith to help their family in their time of destitution. But of course they would help, right? Well, not so fast. To visit those in prison who have been arrested for believing in Christ and following him would associate these people with the imprisoned and would lead officials and the wider public to conclude that they also were insurgents. They also were followers of Christ. And that opened them up to the possibility of great danger or persecution. The believers that the author is writing to here were willing, however, to risk this danger. It seems like whatever might have been feared actually came upon them. It says that their possessions were plundered. Maybe that was by those who looted their house while they were away, supplying the needs of their brothers and sisters in prison. Maybe their possessions were confiscated by the authorities who didn't have enough to formally charge them but wanted to make a statement of warning to them. We don't know. But we do know that it cost them to voluntarily show this act of service. But they weren't deterred by that, though. The author says that they accepted it joyfully. Why? Why would they voluntarily walk into a situation that they knew would mean harm to them and do so with joy? The author says that it's because they had compassion. That word literally means to suffer with. Passion, suffer, and come with, to suffer with. These Hebrew Christians didn't see their brothers and sisters as disconnected from their own experience, but saw that uh, saw them as those who were called to endure and struggle, uh, struggle alongside. So they put themselves in the shoes of these imprisoned Christians and responded in the way that they would expect to be helped if they themselves were locked up. But what's vitally important to note here is that this exact word that is here translated compassion shows up at another place in the book of Hebrews. But there it's translated sympathize. In Hebrews 4.15, it says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, Jesus, who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of the universe, did not stand afar off while we on this earth were bound in our prison, to sin with no one to help us. He sympathized with us. He had compassion on us. He associated with us by taking on human flesh so that, in, uh, so that he might take full ownership and full consequences for the crimes that we committed against God. So he did more than visit us in prison. He took our place there so that we could be acquitted and go free. And not only did the sympathy of Jesus lead to our acquittal as though that weren't enough, 
but it also secures for us a better and eternal possession that no Caesar, no Roman authorities, and no devil could ever plunder. Verse 34 says, You yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This was what compelled the compassion of these Hebrew Christians for their brothers and sisters. The very compassion that they themselves were beneficiaries of in the gospel. It only followed then that they would do likewise when occasion called for it. And so they did it joyfully, following the footsteps of their master that loved them and gave himself for them. Brother and sister here today, do you think often about that gospel and how it came to you, your first encounter with Christ? Do you consider the path to eternal hell that you were on and the gracious intervention of God to freely give you an eternal inheritance in his kingdom at the cost of the life of his own son. These Hebrew Christians were evidently losing sight of the wonder of this gospel, and along with it, were loosening their grip on the Savior. I want you to take a few, a few moments with me in silence and think about what your life would be like without Christ. Think about the vices that would have you bound, the misery of chasing joy where it can't be found, the eternal death that would be awaiting you after the grave. We're going to take a few moments, and I want you to just picture that and think about where your life would have led if Christ had not intervened. When those things are considered alongside the joys of knowing God and having his smile upon you and his kingdom promised to you because of your allegiance to Christ, any sane mind would press on to know and follow him, even if that journey takes you through the valley of the shadow of death a thousand times over. Make it a habit often and especially when tempted to turn back to recall your first encounter with Christ. What you then saw in him that was so appealing so as to be willing to give up everything for him. Be like King David who said in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That is what the author is here helping these readers to do. Recall their first encounter with Christ and the effect it had on their ambitions, their allegiances, their possessions, and their fears. He then turns their focus from looking backwards to the time of their enlightenment to looking forward to the time of the consummation of their hopes, their reward. He pleads with them in verse 35 to not throw away their confidence in Christ because of what that persevering confidence will one day bring when they encounter Christ again. So this is the second point of the passage and this message. Remember your second encounter with Christ. Verse 35 and 36 say this. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. First thing I want us to see here is today's confidence, present day confidence, will soon be exchanged for tomorrow's eternal inheritance. These Christians had a better possession awaiting them at the finish line, and one that will never be taken from them. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, the author says. It is not just God's love demonstrated in the gospel that they had as motivation, but God's gracious generosity that will one day reward them. Their present-day confidence in the Lord Jesus and trust in his promises will one day be what they carry with them to the swap meet of heaven. They will carry it with them, and there God will trade for it an everlasting existence of joy in his perfect presence with no tears, no sickness, no death, and no sin. Though the world of unbelievers now calls them foolish and even persecutes them for treasuring Christ and having faith in his gospel, God will one day reward them greatly for it. Let me be clear that this verse is not teaching some sort of works-based salvation, that if you believe all the right things and stay faithful to the end, that God will pay you the fair wages of eternal life for your hard work. No. It's like Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. God is the one that provided the Savior. God is the one that gives the grace to believe. And God is the one that performs the miracle of regeneration. God is the one that causes us to be born again. And God is the one that preserves us to the end by his spirit and his word. Paul Washer said it well when he declared this. What grace. He declares the wicked uh, righteous by the blood of his dear son. He prepares good deeds for them by his sovereign will. He empowers them by his spirit and then rewards them for what they have done as if they had done it. What grace, what marvelous grace. This verse also speaks against two terrible heresies, unbiblical teachings that are commonly believed in our day. The first is Pascal's wager or some version of it. The idea that the Bible has great teachings on how to live a moral life. Therefore, even if the miraculous claims about salvation and eternity aren't true, then you really haven't lost out on anything since you would have led an upstanding life, even if for no other reason than to benefit society and yourself. But this verse holds up the reward of our internal inheritance as a central motivation to remain faithful. If there is no reward at the end for followers of Christ, then we ought to just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The Apostle Paul in in, uh, Corinthians goes so far as saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we are merely moral citizens seeking to make a positive contribution to this world and have a sense of peace with the divine while walking here below, then we are not to be admired. We are to be pitied. But we are not that sort of people. We are a people with a great driving hope to see God one day and be forever with him in his kingdom. This is our great reward. And like David in Psalm 17, we will not be satisfied until then. He says this, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. 
This verse also flies right in the face of what is popularly called the prosperity gospel. This message teaches that God's intention for every believer is that they experience the fullness of health and wealth and happiness and temporal blessings here on this earth. It sees these things as the objects that Jesus died on the cross to purchase for his people to universally enjoy in this life. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. We praise and thank God for every instance where he provides these things to us. And we pray that we would be faithful stewards of them for his glory. But there is not one word in scripture that says this ought to be our expectation or our right as children of God living in this fallen world. The author doesn't try to comfort these struggling, wavering Christians by saying, trust more and pray more for the season of your blessing is just around the corner. Every weapon that is formed against you by the evil authorities and the hateful, unbelieving world will not prosper and you will be fully vindicated in this life. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to apply a bandage to the cancer that is threatening to kill their faith. No, he tells them to endure. He tells them to hold fast to their confidence in God's faithfulness and wisdom. There is coming a day when the prosperity gospel will be true and we will experience the fullness of all God's blessings of health and wealth and comfort. But that day won't be found on your calendar. It will be in eternity. But when I read the book of Revelation, which talks about that future reality, it also strikes me how little attention those things get. They are glorious, yes, and we look forward to them for sure. But even then, the overwhelming occupation of God's people in eternity will be being consumed with the glory and the majesty of God himself, living in his presence, perfectly reflecting his character, and forever declaring his infinite beauty and wisdom and power and glory and honor. That is the great reward that we long for and and patiently await. And it does indeed take spirit-enabled patience to continue pressing on until that day, which leads to the second point of this section. The reward is only for those who endure to the finish line. Read verse 35 and 36 with me again. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The fulfillment of the promise comes after the enduring commitment to the will of God. Jesus speaks on a number of occasions of those who seem to start out faithful in the Christian journey and yet never make it to the finish line. The pilgrimage of the Christian life is like walking across a minefield on a tightrope. There are dangers on every side and we cannot avoid them without the guiding hand and support of God's word and God's spirit. We have need of endurance and for that we have need of God's help. Perhaps you have experienced points in your journey where you've been brought to the very end of your strength and you felt that you could not go on with Christ another day. You felt the weight even of these words in Hebrews as we read them. You felt the realities being portrayed in them. For the rest of us who maybe have not felt that so acutely A day is coming where this verse will prove more true than we can now imagine. What happens 
when you get the news that your little daughter's ongoing flu-like symptoms may actually be the result of a brain tumor and you're awaiting a scheduled MRI. Or when you struggle to make ends meet month after month and you are working yourself to the bone but can't seem to see a way forward. Or when you go to your routine checkup and you're told that the doctors have discovered cancer. Or when your church building is invaded by haters of Christ and some among the congregation are murdered for worshiping Jesus. These are all experience that, experiences that Christians I personally know have faced or are facing right now. You will have need of endurance in those days. The author could make such a universal statement about the need for endurance to every person who was reading his letter, not only because he was in touch with the trials and the challenges that came with living for Christ in the first century, but also because in God's wisdom, he has designed the Christian life to push us beyond our own capabilities where we need enduring strength from outside of us in order that our lives might glorify the endurance supplying God all the more. The Apostle Paul, again, makes that clear as he tells of his own experience in 2 Corinthians 1. He says this, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And one reading of the biographical sections of Paul's life in the New Testament will convince you that he wasn't using hyperbole in this passage. He experienced suffering, sorrow, and persecution everywhere he went. But in it, he saw God's good and wise purposes of giving him no option but to throw himself in the arms of Christ to be carried. But how did he know this was indeed the case? How did he know that God was really behind his sufferings and ordained it for Paul's good and for his own glory? Well, later in the same book of 2 Corinthians, we see another example of Paul's struggles. But there, we actually get to hear God's own declaration of its purpose. Chapter 12 says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations given to me, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am contented. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God intentionally put Paul in a position that was over his head where he was keenly aware of his own weakness and inability. And he did so in order that Paul might be humbled and realize to look to him for power to go forward. 
This is the sort of life that magnifies Christ, one that is evidently dependent on the power of Christ. So brother and sister, God will do this to you. He has varied ways of doing it in all of our lives, but he will humble you and he will humble me to the point of realizing our deep need of him. And I'm thankful that he will do this for all of us. For in so doing, he is inviting us into greater intimacy. Intimacy with him as we draw near to him to receive the grace necessary to keep putting one foot in front of the other until one day those feet cross the finish line and we receive what is promised. My friend's dad told me years ago in a way that only an older man who's been walking with the Lord for decades can say. He said, son, God will so work in your life so that when you reach the end, you will say and believe the statement to God be the glory with more conviction than you can even imagine was possible now. We have need of endurance. And in Christ, we have all that is needed for endurance. The last point of this section is this. God will bring our earthly journey to an end at the perfect time. Read verse 37 and 38 with me. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The author is now zooming in on the actual person of Christ, who is currently seated in heaven at the right hand of God. He is called the coming one. The reality and the assurance of his return is so sure that it has become one of his titles. This verse would read differently if it said, yet a little while and Jesus will come. That would be true, and we would still trust it because he is God, and he has said it, and he is faithful to his word. But the author raises our confidence by giving Christ as a title the very thing we are trusting him to do. The coming one will come. That is the glorious reality that's being highlighted in these words. He has done everything necessary to secure the eternal life and joy of his people. He has conquered death and the grave and has ascended back to heaven, crowned the prince of the universe and the savior of his people. Nothing more remains for him to accomplish in order for our hope of a glorious future to be cemented. As Jesus himself said, the Father has already appointed the day of Christ's return. He is the coming one. He cannot deviate from that plan as it is part of his very identity. He will come. He is the coming one. And not only will he come, but he will come right on time. He will not be delayed by one second. There are two ways that God may call you to himself. He will either send death to collect you and usher you into his presence. Or he himself will return to earth and call all those who have perseveringly trusted in Christ into his eternal kingdom. During the times of crisis or persecution, it seems as though that day will never come. The calendar looks like it's 10,000 pages long. 
and we may wonder if the fight will ever end. Never forget the words of Psalms 139. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. All of your days were in God's book before you took your first breath or were even a thought to your parents. He will bring your earthly journey to an end at just the right time and not a moment late. And when he does, you will finally be in such a state to please God fully, without sin, mixed motives, wavering allegiances, doubts, or fears. Isn't that an amazing thought? The great frustration of all sincere believers is our tainted worship and service to God. We so often turn aside from him and become sluggish in our devotion. That's the sort of thing that keeps us up at night and troubles us in the day. But there is a day coming when we will live fully, 100% pleasing lives to the God that we love. But until then, we walk by faith. If it is our desire to please him then, then the current manifestation of that desire is living by faith now. That is why the author relates it to in verse 38. He says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, as faith produces now what sight will produce in eternity, lives of loyal allegiance and obedience to God. And so we hope to live pleasing lives in God's presence in eternity, and because of that, we walk in obedient faith today. Our present-day confidence in God will soon be exchanged for our eternal inheritance. We must endure to the end to receive our reward, and God will bring our end at just the right time. So press on and don't throw away your confidence in God's word and promises. The author finishes with a confident indicative. He changes from telling them what to do and not to do to a statement about their identity. Read verse 39 with me. But we are not those, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He reminds them that their striving, their enduring, and their persevering are not a means to their union with God, but a result of it. He again brings up a truth that he mentioned earlier in this chapter. There in verse 14 he says, for by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The present day sanctifying of God's people, the pruning, the refining, the humbling, is rooted in our identity in Christ, which was cemented by Christ through his death and resurrection. By offering himself in our place, on the cross, to face God's judgment, Jesus gave us a perfect record before God. This was before these Hebrews, or us, came to faith, 
before they endured the suffering and the affliction, before they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property or performed any other act of faith. And this righteousness before God remains fixed in God's book for all time. This is the deepest roots that we can draw from when our leaves begin to wither and our strength begins to fade. We must be reminded of who we have been made through the gospel. Righteous sons and daughters. And from that conviction, we do what the old saying instructs, and we become who we are. So to my brothers and sisters here who have come to genuinely trust and bank all their hopes on Christ. You are perfect in God's record book. You are righteous. You are a beloved son or daughter of the creator of the universe. You are forgiven of every sin you have ever or will ever commit. No display of devotion will make you more loved. And no failure will make you less loved by your Savior. He has thrown you into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean of his love. And no matter how hard you swim, you will never be able to reach the shore. We who are Christians now live in the chasm between the day of our enlightenment and the day of our reward. We must keep a constant eye on both in order that the roots of our tree of faith might continually be watered by the love of God and the fruits of good works be constantly called to the surface of our branches by the hope that God will one day pay us for the harvest he himself caused to grow in us. So what do the days ahead bring for you and I? Only God knows. But in Christ we know for certain what eternity holds. And it is so glorious so inexpressible that, as Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Lord, you are the giver of faith. You are the one that cause us and enable us to look upon your truth, your word, and put our confidence in it, to bank our lives and eternity on it. So I pray that you would do what mere words cannot do. You would work in all of our hearts in this room by your Holy Spirit, creating us deeper faith, creating us an abiding trust in your faithfulness, your wisdom, your goodness. I pray, Lord, that as we walk through the days ahead and the year ahead, that our eyes would remain fixed on you, that we would be ever mindful of our first encounter with you when your great love demonstrated through Christ was first brought to us and our eyes opened to your great glory. And I pray also, Lord, that our eyes would be ever on our second encounter with you, Lord. And we will see you face to face. May such a motivation drive us day by day to press on and press in to know you more and to walk faithfully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.